Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. Life cycle events are occasions that mark transitions. Birth and death mark the beginning and end. In Jewish tradition, the bar or bat mitzvah recognizes a transition out of childhood, if not quite adulthood. Marriage is a unique event. The principles include two people, a new family, and two existing families. Humanistic marriages often involve families with diverse perspectives. One generation could be orthodox and another non-observant. Interfaith marriages are not in the least uncommon. In an open society where marriage is based on the wants of two individuals, interfaith relationships occur, and for Jews, as a small minority, they happen often. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom discusses the importance of supporting interfaith marriages and why supporting interfaith families is so important in humanistic Judaism. 2,500 years ago, the leadership of the Jewish world faced a crisis. Its leadership was returning from exile in Babylon, the temple had been destroyed, and those who were left behind had married local women. And what was to be done? These women were not from Hebrew tribes. And yet the leadership was returning home, not knowing what would become of their community. This is from Ezra chapter 10. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken foreign wives to increase the guilt of Israel. And now make confession to Yahweh the God of your fathers and do his will. And separate yourself from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. Separate yourself. Become an amsigula, a people set apart. Those who refused were cut off from the community. Now, how much has the Jewish community's response evolved in 2,500 years? Well, there have basically been three versions of the response. The first is some variation of you're dead to me. And it can be exemplified by the following story. A man came home to visit his old Jewish mother in New York, and he brought home his fiance. And it turned out when they arrived that the fiance was a Native American woman. And so son brought his new fiance in. The mother is sitting there very stone-faced. And the son says, well, mother, I'd like you to meet my fiance. Her name is Running Deer. And the mother extends a hand and says, sitting Shiva. <laughs> So that's response one. The second response has been to push conversion, to encourage someone to change who they are in some sense to marry. And the irony is that in traditional Jewish sources, it says very clearly that one should not convert simply to become married to someone else. Yet that's the way it's happened again and again. And then the third response has been what I call the blinders response, just sort of ignoring that it's going on and trying to minimize its presence. So, for example, in some congregations, and this happens to this day, non-Jewish members can become members as a family with their Jewish partner and their children and send the children to the school. But when it comes time for a bar or a bat mitzvah, they are not able to go up on the bima to be a part of the celebration. They're accepted as members, but not accepted everywhere. So th there are the three strat these three strategies of the you're dead to me, 
the pushing the conversion route or sort of trying to in some ways minimize the fact that it's there. To get the, uh, often what happens, partners who are getting married have to agree to raise the kids exclusively Jewish. And so what they do is they put the Christmas tree in the basement. But they still have it because it's a, an important, to the, important piece of the non-Jewish member. And in any case, there's a big disconnect between what's going on in the real world and what most of the organized Jewish community wants to see. And there are a few better ways to demonstrate that than the story of a survey. The 2000 American Jewish Committee survey, of which I've excerpted a few responses in the sheet that you have in front of you. Now, this survey is something that's done by the American Jewish Committee every year. They do a survey of Jewish opinion. And in the year 2000, they decided to ask some new questions, questions on intermarriage. They never asked these questions again because the results they got were not what they wanted to see. So let's look at some of the results. You can tell from the first question I've excerpted what their agenda is. Which is a greater threat to Jewish life in the United States today, intermarriage or anti-Semitism? You know, equally bad. Intermarriage is 41%, anti-Semitism is 50%. That's what they would sort of like to see, that they're both threats. None of the above wasn't a choice. But question 42 is problematic, because look at the results. It would pain me if my child married a Gentile. Only 40% agreed. Intermarriage is inevitable in an open society. 80% agreed. The best response to intermarriage is to encourage the Gentile to convert. Only 25% agreed. 68% said no. The Jewish community has an obligation to reach out to intermarried couples. 81% said yes. It's racist to oppose Jewish-Gentile marriages. 50% said yes. The Jewish community has an obligation to urge Jews to marry Jews. Well, that, that number they wanted to see, but they would have liked to see it even higher. And then look at the responses on which expresses your view about marriage between Jew and a Gentile. I strongly disapprove, only 12%. I'm disappointed, 30%. Okay. I'm neutral, 40%. I see it as a positive good, 16%. So over 50% are saying it's neutral to positive. And then this is the most striking one. The percentage of rabbis in America that will officiate an inter intermarriage, let alone co-officiate with other clergy, is very, very small. It's one reason I'm busy, because I do it. Because <laughs> I'm in that small number, and there's a large demand for it. In fact, Rabbi Friedman put his kids through college. <laughs> marrying, marrying uh, I mean, all kinds of people, but certainly this, this branch of marriage in particular. And yet, with that percentage of the rabbis, look at what the survey said. Rabbis should refuse to officiate at any marriage between a Jew and a Gentile. Only 22% said that. They should officiate at a marriage between a Jew and a Gentile only if no clergyman, Gentile clergyman is involved. That's 16%. But rabbis should officiate between a Jew and a Gentile even if a Gentile clergyman is involved. Co-officiate. 57%. Almost two-thirds. Now, why are these numbers so off? Because they know people who've had kids, that, or they may have in their own family, children that got intermarried, or maybe looking at it in the future. And from their perspective, they want a rabbi at the ceremony, even if that means a co-officiated ceremony. Now, this was shocking to the American Jewish Committee. That's the reason why they didn't ask these questions again. In fact, they went one step further. If you go to the American Jewish Committee website, they have the survey there as they have all their surveys. 
But here's how it looks. If you look just below, question 42. Try and decipher the numbers from reading that paragraph. Because what they've done is garbled it. You, you can't, I mean, you, it takes a while to figure out to decipher. I put it in a nice chart for you. It's a lot easier. But it's very hard to decipher those numbers. Now, this is the only part of that survey that's garbled like this. So it's not a random programming error. It's the way they've presented it, because they don't want to know the truth of this data. I mean, the irony is that there are probably more rabbis who will officiate at a gay commitment ceremony between two Jews than will officiate or co-officiate an intermarriage. Each is non-traditional. We would think the better response would be to be more welcoming. But that isn't the response that the organized Jewish community has taken. Now, we know, as has been shown in many surveys, that somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of all marriages involving Jewish people are to non-Jewish people. Now, we have to think about what kind of numbers that produces. Let's say you have 100 Jews. 50 of them marry non-Jewish people, and the other 50 marry Jewish people. In other words, they marry each other. So you create 50 intermarried families and 25 Jewish-Jewish families. Now, if you were in marketing, would you write off two-thirds of the market? I mean, you're going for 25 out of the 75 families that you've produced. Well, if you were in marketing, you would say, well, no, you've got you've to broaden the net. So this is the challenge in the Jewish community. And some communities have seen the light, so to speak. They've opened their doors. They've tried to be more welcoming. They've seen that the math is in their favor if they encourage intermarried families to become involved. But many have not. So a quick history of intermarriage in Jewish life. It actually shows up quite a bit in the Bible, if you read it. The problem is that people don't read it. If you look at the story of Joseph, for example, Joseph marries the daughter of an Egyptian priestess. It's right there in Genesis 41. And of course, the famous story we read every spring that nobody highlights as an intermarriage story is the story of Purim. Because Esther marries Achashverosh, the Persian king. And I highly doubt she convinced him to convert because <laughs> he was the Persian king. <laughs> he has, he's ahead of his own cult, so to speak. So he didn't convert, and she's married to him, and there's no question about that in the story. It's an important part of the story. And then the famous case of Ruth, the Moabite. It's a story that's read at Shavuot at the beginning of the summer. It's a story of Ruth coming from Moab. She's a literally a foreign woman, one of the tribes, by the way, that the Hebrews are commanded not to marry into. The Moabites are supposed to keep them as far away as possible. And yet she ultimately becomes the grandmother of King David, this foreign woman. Now, we also know that there are plenty of stories in the Torah and in the Bible in general that are opposed to intermarriage. The Ezra passage is one. I'll read you one more passage from the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, this is in chapter 7, talking about the outside peoples when the Hebrews conquer the land. You shall strike them and completely destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, no sure, nor show mercy to them. And you shall not make marriages with them. Your daughter shall, you shall not give to his son, nor his daughter shall you take to your son. But you shall deal thus with them. You shall destroy their altars and cut down their images and break down their asherim, their holy trees, and burn their carved idols with fire. 
For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a special people to himself above all peoples that are on the face of the earth. So clearly not supportive of an open community. Now throughout Jewish history, rabbis were opposed to intermarriage. They didn't officiate it, they didn't support it. But we have to recognize that Jews in far-flung communities would often marry local women. And we know this because Jews don't all look the same. If they only married each other all the time, then by and large the genetics would be consistent. But what we found in studying Jews in Yemen and Jews in China and Jews in India and Jews in far-flung places as they were spread through the Middle Ages, we find that they have at least as much in common with the people around them as they do with Jews at a great distance. So there is clearly a Jewish ethnic connection there, but it wasn't exclusive, and who knows how kosher those conversions the merchant was doing out in the far edge of China were. Now, it's really only with a secular government that you can have a real possibility of an intermarriage. After all, when the government is Christian, they're not supporting Jewish-Christian intermarriage either, and neither are Muslims. So it's only with the beginning of the 19th century, the ideas of enlightenment and emancipation, modern democracies create this window to have a kind of civil marriage that enables an intermarriage possibility to develop. And it didn't really develop in Jewish life until even the second half of the 20th century. If you're interested on the back of this sheet, I gave you some of the dates of the growth of the intermarriage rate. Before 1970, something like 13% of marriages of Jews uh, were intermarriages. And it ticked up in 1970 to 79, it went to 28%, then 38% in the early 80s, into the 40s, in 85 to 90, and on into the 90s. But before that period, before 1970, the Jewish non-Jewish intermarriage rate was 10% of the marriages. It's now much larger. So why has this grown? Well, there are a number of reasons. The first is that both Jewish and non-Jewish worlds have become much more secularized. There's less ritual separation. Once you're not keeping kosher, you can go eat with the in-laws. Uh, there's less of a sense of chosenness that the Jews are, as described in the Bible, a people set apart and above all the rest of the peoples. After all, it's hard to look down on your future son-in-law's family when they're both PhDs in chemistry. I mean, you know, that, that educational difference when they were, you know, day laborers in the ghetto, well, that's not the case anymore. So there's much more a process of a diminution of chosenness and an openness to the outside world and the less ritual separation, uh, the more that's facilitated. The second development is that Jews themselves have become acculturated to American society. They don't speak Yiddish at home. They speak English at home. They have American culture in common with everybody else out there. So it's not like they're only watching certain TV shows or they're only reading the Jewish book. They're reading everything. They're reading the newspapers, and nobody's reading newspapers. They're reading the websites. They're reading the magazines. They're out there in American culture just like everybody else, and so they have that in common with the outside world. As well, Jews have become much more integrated into American society, not simply open to American culture, but they live in mixed neighborhoods. They go to schools, not primarily Jewish schools. I mean, if you went to Southside High School in 1930, it was a Jewish institution. <laughs> I mean, when something's 80 and 90% Jewish, you know, what are your chances of finding a non-Jewish husband there? pretty small. But as Jews have diversified their residences, they also are going to school. Certainly universities are not segregated. I mean, if everybody went to Brandeis, it would be 
a very limited experience, and that's not the case. And in particular, when you get into higher education and professional work, there it's even more a part of being integrated into American society. Law firms now, you don't have to only work in a Jewish law firm or a Jewish accountant's firm or a Jewish hospital. I mean, there are all these hospitals out there that were started to give Jewish doctors a job because they couldn't get jobs at the main hospitals. But now, you can get a job anywhere as long as you're good. Another factor that people don't appreciate as much. There's a phenomenon that started in America in the 1950s called ecumenism, which basically took the approach of whatever God you believe in, it doesn't matter, as long as it's God. This was Dwight Eisenhower's approach. And what happened with this ecumenism and also the kind of bland liberal religion that people were being taught is the, the core of their belief system became, I should believe in God and I should be a good person. It's called ethical monotheism, in fancy terminology, but basically it boils down to, well, my religion is about be, believing in God and being a good person. Well, if my religion is believe in God and be a good person, and I go to a church, and your religion is believe in God and be a good person, and you go to a synagogue, then what's the difference, right? We're, the core things are really the same, so there's not as big a difference between the two. It's on the level of potato and potato, and not on the level of savior versus revealed Torah. And the biggest factor that led to growth in intermarriage is simply a process of tolerance on both sides. I mean, when you have a civil rights movement where people are arguing for the right to interracial marriage, arguing for treating everyone the same. My mother tells a story that she came home. Her family was about as liberal as you can get in the Jewish community. They were uh, reformed by some affiliation, but at many years of their life, they were part of a socialist Jewish uh, Yiddish-speaking organization. I mean, they were very far to the left. And she once brought home a black man as a date to a family event, and her grandmother got very angry. And she was shocked because they were civil rights activists. They were, you know, in all these multiracial, interracial programs politically. And so her mother said, you can bring home one of two black men. One is if he's president of the United States, and the other is Harry Belafonte. <laughs> those are the... Those are the only two acceptable ones. <laughs> but it was sh shocking to my mother because, you know, here she was being raised in this liberal, you know, uh, civil rights advocate family, and yet that, that response was still there. In fact, you can think about it with the shoe on the other foot. If someone said to you, I won't marry you because you're Jewish, what's the reaction? You won't marry me because I'm Jewish? What are you, an anti-Semite? So all of a sudden, the shoe's on the other foot, and it feels a little bit more uncomfortable. So the big question in the organized Jewish community, I mean, if intermarried families all join synagogues, then it wouldn't be a big issue, right? The issue in the Jewish community is many interfaith families tend not to join synagogues or to raise the children identifying as Jewish. Uh, the National Jewish Population Study, which has some methodology questions about it, came up with a figure of around 30%, about a third. I was surprised it was that high, given the experience of intercultural families dealing with the Jewish community. So why is it that that number is so small? And is it always going to be that small? So you can get a sense of that in a more um, poetic way with the song by Fred Small that's on the back of the sheet called If I Were a Moose. This is sort of a story of intermarriage set in the animal kingdom. If I were a moose and you were a cow, would you love me anyhow? Would you introduce me to your folks? Would you tell your friends no moose jokes if I were a moose and you were a cow? 
Would you invite me to your club and risk a cruel bovine snub? Would you lead me down the receiving line and boldly boast, this moose is mine? Would your parents watch us graze, shake their heads, it's just a phase? Or would they thank their stars above, their precious heifers found her love? Would your grandparents change their will? Their will? They'd really expected a Holstein bull. For this, for this we toiled before the plow, you bring home someone who's not even a cow? There's a lot of proper stock around, like that nice young Guernsey at Farmer Brown's, or that last one we ridiculed and cursed on second thought. You could do worse. <laughs> but if you think this thing will last, could he learn to moo and eat our grass, shed his antlers in the dirt? Could you persuade him to convert? And on and on. So the problem is that in many cases, intermarried couples find a feeling of rejection. It can be from their family, the sitting Shiva response, it can certainly be in trying to find an officiant for the wedding ceremony. I mean, I get calls from the tri-state area. I got a call from uh, an email from Indiana a couple days ago asking if I would go to Bloomington. It's just too far, but there's nobody there to do it. And I've had calls in Wisconsin and calls in Minnesota. And I feel bad, but you know, it's also a professional thing for me. I can't serve everybody. It's too bad there isn't someone out there to do it. It may come when they have a baby and they want to have some kind of baby welcoming ceremony, but there isn't something out there that either makes the non-Jewish partner feel comfortable, even if it is a primarily Jewish ceremony, or even one that will enable them to celebrate their family as it is. In many cases, the experience of the non-Jewish partner, whether it's trying to find a rabbi for the ceremony or trying to find a synagogue that will let him go on the bima or her go on the bima, it's very difficult. So that experience of rejection is one of the reasons why so few uh, intermarried families historically have raised children identifying as Jewish. Now a second factor is that in many cases people that don't marry someone of a different religious or cultural background themselves are not that religious. It is if they were keeping kosher and observing the Shabbat laws all the time because it was personally meaningful to them then that sort of eliminates how many dates they could go on a Friday night. Right? It has to be walking distance. So the point is it would limit their, their circle of uh, uh, possible partners. So the people that tend to get married, uh, intermarried, often are less religious, or even they would say not religious. They're culturally Jewish. They're you know, culturally Christian. They like the Christmas tree, but not the nativity scene. They may celebrate elements of their culture, but they're not religious. And so if the only option in the Jewish community is a actively religious Jewish identity, they may not connect with that either. Now, in some cases, intermarried families are looking to do both religiously. They want to raise a kid who is exposed to both a believing Christianity and a believing Judaism. And they run into challenges in finding an institution that will support it. Because after all, the Catholic Church says you have to believe this, this, and this, and do these things. And traditional Jewish congregations have the same thing. So in some ways, they have their own internal problems in that particular dynamic, but it's one of the reasons why, again, they wouldn't make a Jewish choice. Another challenge, and this is simply an extension of the general experience, there are more variables to distract from Jewish identity. After all, if you're a Jewish-Jewish family, there's still soccer and television and school plays and uh, extracurricular activities and clubs and the parents have classes they want to take and work gets in the way and there are all these other things. So now you've added on other holidays and family to visit. It just adds more variables. And the most important reason I think that it's been a problem is that they haven't found a welcoming community that either accepts them at the ceremony or more importantly, 
accepts how they want to live their family. Some may want to live a primarily Jewish identity and have a Christmas tree or minimal Christian presence. Some may really want to raise the children exposed to both cultures and feeling like they're half Jewish or that they're part of both worlds because their parents are coming from different worlds and they love both sets of grandparents equally. And so the Jewish community in general has taken this ignorance approach, the wanting to not know what's going on in the home or denying the reality that they're living an intercultural life. They're part of more than one culture at the same time in that family. Now, I have to tell you, the relief I hear on the phone from wedding couples who call up and are looking for someone to officiate at the wedding is demonstrable. I mean, you can hear them exhale. And what's even more interesting for me are the ones who have persevered after being rejected. I heard a story from a humanistic rabbi in Michigan who had a wedding couple who had talked to 40 rabbis before they found her. Now, there's a testimony to a strength of Jewish connection, by the way, because being rejected 40 times, I mean, it's like wandering in the desert for 40 years. I mean, you're, you're, you're looking for a long time. And yet they still wanted to find one. They still put in the effort to try and make it happen. Now, there's a survey that came out just this past week about the Boston Jewish community that is a sign of hope, which is in the Boston Jewish community, they've done a lot of work in the last 10 years, given this market analysis I talked about with the 50 families versus the 25, they said, we need to broaden our market. So they spent money on marketing. In fact, they increased their public relations budget for outreach programs, including advertising in the secular press, not just in the Jewish press, by 10 times. And what has been the result? Well, they did a survey of intermarried Jewish families, and they found that 4% of them were trying to raise the kids as both, 28% were raising them as none of the above, 8% were raising them as something not Jewish, but 60% of the intermarried families in that Boston Jewish community were raising the kids as Jewish, as having a positive Jewish identity. And a very high percentage of them were affiliated. Something like 37% of intermarried families were members of synagogues which is a much higher percentage than you'll find in other communities. And San Francisco found a similar thing, where they've also spent a lot of money on public outreach and welcoming and intermarried families. Something like 40% of the kids in intermarried homes are getting a Jewish education, which is higher than the general percentage because of that effort. Now, the exception is, of course, they've done this push for the outreach. They've tried to find a welcoming home for intermarried families. And even then, there's still the 30% doing none of the above, and the 8% who are doing something else, and the 4% who are doing both. I mean, they're going to make their choices in the end, but you want the door as open as possible. So let me tell you some general truths about intermarriage. The first is that people marry individuals. No one goes out there saying, I'm looking to marry a non-Jew. First of all, that's a broad category. It includes about 99.5% of the rest of the world. <laughs> but more importantly is for the issue here, it's a question of how important is their Jewishness to what they do and who they are. That is, I didn't have to marry a Jewish person to have a Jewish home because being Jewish is very important to me. It's what I study, it's what I do for a living, but it's also what I love to do. It's what I do for a living, but what I live to do in a personal sense. So whoever I was going to marry, that was part of the baggage. And if being Jewish is that important to you, then you're going to have a Jewish presence in your home. Just like if being a fan of a particular sports team is an important part of who you are. I mean, I don't mean to trivialize it, but on some level, it's part of who you are, so it's going to be part of who your family becomes. In fact, what's improved the situation for intermarriage is actually 
what I call equal opportunity intermarriage. The first generation of intermarriages tended to be Jewish men with non-Jewish women. And they found in studies across the board in religious identity that women tend to have a more profound influence on the Jewish identity or on the Christian identity or on the de denominational identity of the child than the man does. Maybe they care about it more, maybe they're looking for a community more, whatever it is, the woman tends to have more of an influence on it. So now, about equal percentages of Jewish men and Jewish women are intermarrying. So what that means is more of those intermarried families have a Jewish woman as the partner who's going to be pushing in the Jewish direction for the family. So that is a step forward in that particular regard. Now, a second point about intermarriage. Every marriage is a mixed marriage. Every partnership is a mixed partnership. Because first of all, you have two individuals, very different people. You have, in, in most cases, two genders. And the difference between a man and a woman is a big difference, <laughs> even sometimes more so than between different cultures. You have different family backgrounds. Now, my wife and I are both Jews, both raised as Jews, both raised as humanistic Jews. Her family is very different from my family. I'll give you just one example. They do something they call calling to check in, which means you get three to four phone calls a day, <laughs> sometimes from each of them. How are you doing? What's going on? What's happening? Just checking in. I thought I was under surveillance. I just talked to you like two hours. I mean, in my family, generally, we call for news or something's happening. We need to arrange something. You know, it's, it's more business-like. In this case, it was just calling to check in. And, and so at first, I, uh, I didn't know what to do with this. <laughs> I mean, I, I realized it was coming from a good place, but it was putting me in a bad place. So in the end, I, I realized that this is a case of different family culture, that this is what they do, and we do it differently, so I have to find a middle ground that's going to work for me. Now, that's the case where we're from the same background, but we're different people. We're different individuals. And you may even have, in a Jewish-Jewish partnership, very different beliefs. One may be a more secular Jew, one may be a more religious Jew. And so to assume that just because they're both Jewish, it's automatically going to work out is naive. There's an old joke. Why is a Jewish divorce so expensive? Because it's worth it. That's right. I mean, you can't put it more concisely. The point is that Jewish-Jewish marriages can break up and Jewish-Christian partnerships can break up. It's a function of the partnership as much as anything else. Now, another truth that's important to understand is the difference between interfaith and intercultural marriage. Interfaith marriage is where you believe very different things. So if I had married an Orthodox Jew, it would have been really an interfaith marriage in the same cultural tradition but believing very different things about the world. However, if I had married a ex-Catholic, someone who was raised in a particular tradition but didn't identify with it in a basically humanistic personal philosophy, that would be much more in the realm of an intercultural relationship where we're from different cultural backgrounds and we're sharing each other's diversity more than having a battle of the Inquisition all over again. And an intercultural marriage can be a very deep and rich experience that people assume is going to be this clash of cultures between the Catholic Church and the synagogue or the, you know, the Protestant steeple in the synagogue. It's not always that case. Now, another point that I found, intermarriage is a very big deal until the kids turn 36. <laughs> Once the kid turns 36, then the parents are not so concerned about intermarriage as much as they're concerned about 
the grandkids. <laughs> and so intermarriage becomes a lot less of an issue if they bring home a non-Jewish partner. Well, whew. <laughs> you know, at least at least you're with someone alone. At least you're not alone. At least you can have the grandkids I've been waiting for, and having to suffer through seeing my friends throw the pictures around in my face. Okay, so once the kid gets to 36, it's much less of a concern. Now there are some positive results of intermarriage. One is that the kid does get married, does find someone to to settle down with. The second is it gives you something positive to do on Christian holidays. You, you can visit the family. I mean, you know, you don't have to be bitter at the movies eating Chinese food. <laughs> now, intermarriage is also a sign of the decline of anti-Semitism. Because after all, if they hated us, they wouldn't marry us. Uh, in fact, in some cases, tolerance is spread by intermarriage. My, my mother was on a cruise once, and the people sitting across from her made some kind of joke about chewing someone down or something like that. And she was about to you know, rise up in her full Anti-Defamation League fury. And, <laughs> and the wife of the man who had said it smacked him on the shoulder and said, you idiot, your son-in-law is Jewish. <laughs> so she didn't have to say anything. It's in the family already. You know, of all those Jews marrying into all those non-Jewish families, I mean, it's hard to keep the country clubs restricted anymore <laughs> because now it's your kids that are there. And most importantly, there's a positive result of intermarriage in terms of fertility. Jewish families are notorious for a low birth rate. One kids, two kids, maybe three kids, except for the Orthodox community. So now you get a Jewish kid from a 1.2 kid family. And they marry someone from a Catholic family, which have eight kids. They're going to wind up with about four or five kids. That's more than they would have had otherwise. And as long as they're welcomed or encouraged to be part of the Jewish community, that's a net positive for demographics. So in some ways, it's an added fertility. After all, you're expanding the pool. Remember, of that, hundred, that group of 100 Jews who married, you now have a potential of 150 people to become involved because of the 50 people brought in, as opposed to thinking of the 50 people cut out. Now, there are clearly challenges for Jewish identity with intermarriage. After all, you, know, you are living in two cultures. As I said, it, it increases the variables, and other choices may be made. And there is not going to be a universal acceptance of their Jewish identity. If the mother is not Jewish and only the father is Jewish, it may work in some places, not in other places. There may be issues to be covered there. But on some level, it's a subset of what happens in a free society. I agree with that survey. Intermarriage is inevitable in a free society. The only way you can stop it is to not live in a free society. If you read Alan Dershowitz's book, The Vanishing American Jew, which he wrote in response to his son getting intermarried, he says at the beginning, if you want to make kids marry Jews, there's an easy way to do it. You put them in a ghetto, you only teach them Yiddish, you tell them that everybody who's not Jewish is evil, stupid, cruel, and wrong, and and then they won't have contact with the outside world, don't give them a television, don't let them go to college. You'll keep them Jewish. But who wants to live in that community? If you're going to go to college, you're going to meet non-Jewish people. If you're going to live in a diverse neighborhood, you're going to meet non-Jewish people. It's going to happen. So it's inevitable. So I promised a new approach to intermarriage. It's not conversion. It's not ignoring what's going on. But it's accepting the reality of the intercultural family. They're still going to get married. You know, they don't, they don't even need me to get married. They can go to the judge. They can go to Las Vegas. 
they can get a friend ordained on the internet for $25. I have uh, uh, my mother-in-law actually ordained her cat <laughs> on the internet. They have an ordination certificate with the cat's name, and so the cat's a minister if you, if, if you know anyone that's looking. <laughs> so people are still going to get married, and they're still going to choose to raise children in their own way. I mean, if they want a Christmas tree, I can't stop them from putting it's their house. How can you stop them from putting a Christmas tree? The challenge is to try and maintain a positive Jewish connection. I mean, I haven't even covered the variables of homosexual relationships and those kind of partnerships. I mean, in some families, the response to intermarriage is, well, how does that fit into the dynamic of gay and lesbian partnerships? In fact, many of them tend to be intercultural as well. And so they're dealing with a double feeling of rejection from their families, and it's even more important to stay open to those experiences. So there are two advantages to the humanistic Jewish approach. The first is that for us, our Jewish connection is a connection to Judaism as a culture. It's our ethnic culture, it's our family background. And you can be part of more than one culture and more than one family at a time. In my own case, I'm white, I'm male, I'm from the Midwest, I'm Jewish. I mean, these are all parts of my identity, and at certain times they're more important than others. So tomorrow afternoon, for example, being a University of Michigan alumnus may be more important than being Jewish <laughs> for a, a block of time in the afternoon. Now, there are other experiences where being Jewish is more important. You know, Yom Kippur, when there was a Bears game, too bad. <laughs> that Jewish identity, for most, was more important. And so there are times when those multiple identities move around. That's part of everybody's experience. And we can provide the Jewish cultural connection even for someone who's in a family that's exposed to both cultures. Because they're living in both and at certain times one is more important than the other. And they may make the choice down the line to say, well, Jewish culture is my primary connection and my father's family is Christian, but my primary connection is this. They may make that choice, but unless they have the opportunity to explore living in both, if that's what their family is doing, then we've turned off that half of their identity. I often use language like we're part of the Jewish family because you can be part of more than one family at a time. I'm part of my wife's family, like it or not, and, and, she's, and she's part of mine. It's, that's part of the joy of making a partnership. You, you marry a whole bunch of other people too. Now, the second attraction that humanistic Judaism provides is that we have a humanist perspective on life. That is, we learn from the human experience, not only the Jewish experience, but also the human experience. You saw in the service. There are ethical teachings of even similar vocabulary from many different traditions. And there's nothing wrong with learning them from other traditions as well as your own. We learn from other cultures and we focus on what is shared in human knowledge. Not only what Jews think uh, about the beginning of the world, the origin of human beings and their nature, but also what other people think and what science has brought us and what shared human knowledge has produced to understand the world and our part in it and what human beings really are. And more importantly, we look for both the human roots of our holidays and the Jewish roots of our holidays. Coming up in December is Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. And I thought for a while it was an amazing coincidence that everyone else was putting up lights at the same time. The answer is it's not a coincidence. There are many cultures where when it gets dark in the winter, coming near the winter solstice, People light lights because they want to show the sun, the sun how to shine. 
They want to counteract the darkness. They want to feel the warmth of community to counteract the cold of the winter. So Hanukkah has its Jewish roots and its human roots. The harvest festivals of Passover and Sukkot and Shavuot, they're harvest festivals. They're agricultural as well as part of the Jewish calendar. So we can learn from the human experience as well as from the Jewish. When a couple comes to me about a wedding, they're often apologetic. They say things like, well, you know, my, my fiancé isn't Jewish. And my first response to them is mazel tov. Congratulations on finding someone you love that you want to marry, that you want to build a life with. In fact, what I'll ask them, if they often if they say, uh, my, my fiancé is not Jewish, I'll say, well, do you love him? <laughs> Are you in love? Well, yeah. Great. <laughs> That's the important question. We want people to marry for love. If they marry someone Jewish, mazel tov. If they marry someone they love who's not Jewish, mazel tov. They've asked me for a Jewish presence at the ceremony. And they may well be open to having a Jewish presence in their family. And the more we say no, the more they'll say no to. Saying yes has its challenges. But we've seen the cost of saying no for the last 2,000 years. It's time to try Mazel Tov instead. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.